Luke chapter 12. We're going to finish Luke chapter 12 this morning and go into chapter 13 a little bit. Again, these are, this, this is a difficult section of Luke. These are hard sort of passages. Uh, but we want to deal with everything Jesus said. We want to deal with the whole picture. We don't want to give a, a nice version of him. We want, to, we want to present an accurate, full picture. So that's why we're doing the whole thing. Tom Wright explains in one of his books that Beethoven used to be quite cruel to his audiences. And he would play these long, haunting melodies and the audience would get very relaxed and sort of almost sleepy with this nice dreamy music that he had been playing. And then his mischievous side would come out and he would just thump his fist down on the piano and all of them would jump and look shocked and he would laugh. Jesus is doing a bit of piano thumping here in in this passage of Luke. This is not ear-tickling stuff. (laughs) This is hard stuff. But this is the stuff that Jesus said. If you've got a red-letter Bible, nearly everything today is red. These are the words of Jesus, and they have supreme value in our lives. So if you have a problem with the tone of the message this morning, you know who to talk to. You can, you can access them anytime you want. Let's read from verse 49 to, to the end of chapter 12, and then we'll read a little bit more later. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Goodness me. (laughs) Um, A much more sanitized version of Jesus is very appealing, isn't it? A sort of uh, happy-go-lucky, friendly, buddy Christ picture of Jesus uh, who doesn't say any hard things, who doesn't place any demands, who doesn't call out sin, who's popular, doesn't annoy anybody, doesn't rock the boat. Uh, But we will see today that Jesus is a divisive and confrontational person. In fact, 
the gentle Jesus picture, the popular I get on with everybody picture. Scott McKnight says that Jesus like that would never have been crucified. <laughs> We've got to remember Jesus was crucified and he wasn't crucified for being nice to everybody and keeping everybody happy. He was crucified for his controversial, confrontational, divisive teaching in particular. And as with last week's passage, in the immediate context here, for when Jesus originally said these words, probably in around AD 28, 29, in the immediate context is AD 70, out in the future, about 40 years away from Jesus' crucifixion. And in AD 70, what happened was the Romans besieged or after a a long siege of Jerusalem, they came into the city and they just wrecked all around them. They pulled the temple apart. They crucified so many people that they ran out of wood. And as you walked up the road into Jerusalem on both sides of the road, there were just crosses the whole way up the road, thousands of them. No trees left because they used them all to crucify people. That's what was in the immediate future. That coming massive oppression and judgment at the hands of Rome. But there's still plenty of truth here for us. Plenty that applies throughout the ages. The first bang on the keyboard in this passage is when Jesus says, Do you think I came to bring peace? And all the angels are like, Yes! (laughs) Because we sang about that. To the shepherds on the hillside in a book called Luke in chapter 2. We sang a song that went glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. And Jesus says do you think I came to bring peace? And everybody's like yay. And then he says no. I did not. I came to bring division. What is he saying? He quotes from Micah 7 but he is he is telling the people that whenever there is a choice made to follow him, there is peace with God in, our, in the hearts of those in whom God's favor rests and those who, who choose to follow him. We have peace. But the choice to follow Jesus creates division with others who do not choose to follow him. And we... We probably historically in this land haven't seen that that much or in the West haven't seen it. We, we're sort of shocked when we hear of families in Islamic countries where somebody chooses to follow Jesus and they're immediately thrown out of the house. You're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. You're a division. Some people in this country will still experience family division or being looked down upon by other family members if they choose to follow Jesus, but it might not be just as severe as in those other places. But I think in our society, when tolerance and acceptance of everything is so important and being politically correct and never saying that something is wrong, the choice to follow Jesus will become more and more a divisive choice when others will divide and contend with you for choosing to follow him, they will not just respect your difference of opinion, but it will cause division. And the church, I think, is called to provide family because there are those who, because they choose to follow Jesus, they become a bit of a black sheep in their own families. 
And he says later on in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 18, he says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Those who have been divided from a family because they've chosen to follow Jesus, they will be embraced into the bigger family of the church. That's the first bang on the keyboard, that he's not actually bringing peace. And then the second bang on the keyboard is this call for the people to discern the times that they are living in. You don't have to have a PhD in meteorology to look at the sky these days and have a pretty good guess at whether it's going to rain or not. After three or four weeks of blue skies, suddenly late Friday afternoon, everything got quite dark <laughs> and felt oppressively warm and humid and everyone who had their eyes open knew it was going to rain. And what Jesus is saying to these people is the signs all around you are simple. They're easy to interpret. You do not need to be super smart to figure out what's going on. You see, what, what is happening in Israel at that time is that the Romans have come and they're occupying the land. The priesthood is corrupt. The nation is being oppressed by a wicked ruler called Herod. The Pharisees are just reeking with hypocrisy. And in the middle of all of that corruption, foreign nations... Corrupt leadership, there comes a young prophet announcing the kingdom of God. It has happened before. It has happened in the Old Testament whenever the leadership of God's people have been corrupt. And an enemy nation, whether it's the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or whoever it is, an enemy nation is waiting at the gates to come in and to wreak havoc on God's people. And a prophet is there calling God's people to repentance. It's the same pattern that has repeated throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus says to those, why can you not see what's going on? Everything is being set up. Once again, for the people of God to be judged by a wicked foreign nation. For, for all, in this case, all the might of Rome to come crashing down on Israel. But as we'll see later in Luke, and as we all know, all the might of Rome came crashing down on Jesus before it came crashing down in Jerusalem. He stepped in to the place of people and took that punishment at the hands of a foreign nation. Whenever Jesus calls the people here to actually look around them and see what's going on and respond to his message, I'm always reminded to these guys back in 1 Chronicles 12. And 1 Chronicles starts off with just lots of names, 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 you know, numbers and names and names and numbers and families and him and her and then, and it's hard to read. And every now and again, there's just a wee glimmer to sort of, keep you going you know and in, in first chronicles twelve thirty two, we read about these guys called the sons of issachar and it says they understood the times and they knew what israel should do and jesus calls these religious leaders and the people who are listening to him to understand the times and i think this is a, a universal are universally applicable statement. Do we understand the times that we're living in and do we know what the people of God should do? 
or do we just keep on doing what we've always done? What are the, the impending crises in today's society? What's it going to look like in five years, in ten years? What are the things that right now the church should be upskilling in to be able to bring God's message of repentance and restoration into people's lives? Do we discern the times? For we're already seeing and we're going to see more and more an absolute epidemic of mental health issues. We're seeing it. We've been seeing it for for a couple of decades starting to get much more knowledgeable about it. But goodness me, what's it going to be like in a couple of decades' time? And it doesn't mean everybody has to train to be a counsellor. And I know there's a degree of bias here towards counselling being a good thing. But goodness me, there's going to be a big need for it in the next few decades. And the very nature of the fact that it's largely one-to-one means an awful lot of people want to, on a very simple level, be able to give counsel to others, whether that's professional and paid or whether it's just the wisdom of the scriptures and knowing God and being able to sit down with people and walk through crises with them because it is an absolute epidemic that is coming. It's probably going to be one of the biggest things that we see in our lifetime that the church could minister into. Family breakdown is another one. We're seeing it, we have seen it for for decades and we're going to see it more and more. Addictions, just getting, there's, there's just a great buffet of things to get addicted to. Compared again to decades ago, there's so many things that we can get addicted to. There's so many things presented to us and presented to younger people at younger and younger and younger ages for them to get addicted to. Will we just keep on doing what we're doing? Or will we see what's going on? Will we discern the times and will we know what the church has to do? And will we equip ourselves, train ourselves, position ourselves, make decisions to to, to position the church to be able to bring the message of good news into these different situations? Maybe the church just needs a crash on the keys. I was going to do it and then I thought I better not. (laughs) But watch out, maybe some week, whenever you're nodding off. <laughs> maybe the church just needs a, a bang on the keys to suddenly jar it into, into action. Jesus bangs the keys another time. Oh, this, you know, just a, a quote from Tom on that last point. The part of the prophetic role of the church is to understand the events of earth and to seek to address them with the me- message of heaven. To be able to discern the times and bring God's message into it. Jesus goes on to say that there is judgment coming and calling the people to take urgent action. One of the things in this passage and at the start of chapter 13 is an urgency of response. Particularly around the area of repentance. And he pictures somebody who is on their way to court and he says you really should sort things out now while you're on the way 
rather than just stubbornly waiting to see what the judge says. He says it would be better to reconcile, better to to, to get everything straightened out before you arrive in front of the judge because once you're thrown into prison, he says, you won't get out until you've paid every last penny. And I don't think Jesus is teaching some notion here that people could go to hell and then get out again. (laughs) I think he's teaching that if we don't repent and we don't do it with urgency, we will be held accountable for everything. You won't get out until you have paid the last penny. If you choose to reject the gracious offer of God's forgiveness and salvation, if you refuse to repent, then Jesus says, you're on your own and you will pay every last penny rather than it being paid for you. Chapter 13 starts off with a couple of tragic incidents and a bizarre little passage that's only in Luke Let me read the first five verses. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus talks about these two incidents. One of them was a display of evil by an evil man. Pontius Pilate was a horrific human being absolutely horrific. He continually trampled on the Jewish people. He, on one occasion, it's historically recorded that he took all the money from the temple treasury and used it to build an aqueduct. And then when people questioned them on it, he brutally, brutally put them down. And what has happened in this incident is that Pilate has sent soldiers to the temple where some Galileans, now listen because you'll hear something else in this, Galilean pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem from Galilee were slaughtered and their blood was shed to the point that their blood and the blood of sacrifice, there was no telling the difference between them. This, you know, he just was an impulsively brutal man. And the ones that were telling Jesus this were probably saying, Jesus, you're... You're a Galilean and you're leading a bunch of Galileans on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Can I tell you what happened to the last people who did this? (laughs) Trying to talk Jesus out of, of continuing on his journey. But I think this is a profound, subtle little pointer to what is coming. As, as the Galilean heads to Jerusalem where Pilate will shed his blood and his blood will no longer be, his blood will be the, the blood of sacrifice. There'll be no difference between the two. And what has happened to these people is going to happen to Jesus. So we have this one incident where an evil man has done something profoundly evil, unexplainably evil. And it happened this week in Nottingham, right? It just happens where, where people do 
unspeakably evil things. I read things yesterday in the newspaper about what Russian soldiers have done to Ukrainian captives, and I wouldn't repeat it. Brutal evil. Unspeakable evil. And then there's a second incident that Jesus refers to when a tower fell. Some building and the the foundations were a bit ropey and, and down it comes and 18 people were killed. And the question then emerges in these verses about whether a worse level of sin causes a worse degree of judgment. Jesus puts the finger on it. He says, do you think, referring to the ones that Pilate had killed, do you think they were worse sinners than all the others? Or the ones that had fallen, that this tower had fallen on, do you think they were more guilty than all the others? In other words, whenever something like this happens, check me on this because I think this is true, you will get people who will say, oh, well, they had it coming to them. You'll get people who will speculate that what happened was part of God's judgment and they deserved it. For example, this happened back about 22 years ago when 2,977 people got up in the morning, had their breakfast, kissed their families goodbye, went to work or boarded planes on a sunny morning in September and died as terrorists flew the planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And I remember watching it all evening on TV, dumbfounded and thinking the world has changed and will never be the same again. And there were those at that time in the church who speculated this is God's judgment on America. And I'm like, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Jesus gives us no merit and no right to do that at all. Do you think the people in those towers were worse sinners than us? (laughs) Or take another example when about a hundred times as many people got up and ate breakfast and went to work or went to the beach on Boxing Day 2004, unaware that an earthquake had happened in the Indian Ocean that triggered a massive tsunami that wiped them all out. 227,898 people. And again, I remember sitting at, at, uh, at Linda's family home on Boxing Day watching this on the news. And I remember again phone-in shows on the radio and people speculating why that had happened to those particular nations. And some Christians were on and they just went on to places that they should not go to. (laughs) Jesus said, do you think these people were worse than you? No, (laughs) no. Don't be looking at things like this and suggesting that they deserved it. Jesus flips the the, the question. He, He also says in John 9 about a guy born blind. Somebody comes and asks him in John 9, the disciples say, was this guy born blind because he was a sinner? Which which is a strange, you know, concept. Did he sin in the womb? Was he a sinner or or were his parents sinners? And Jesus says, neither. Neither. Stop looking at tragic situations and then trying to pontificate that it's happened because of this or because of that. Jesus changes it all and he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, he's not saying a tar will fall on you 
or that some horrific dictator will slaughter you. He's, he, he is, he's not answering the question of why these things happen. He's, he's addressing the fact death comes to us all. <laughs> Sooner or later. And, and whenever we see these tragic events in the news, the reason they're so tragic and so traumatic is they really expose our mortality. They expose the fact that death exists in a fallen world and nothing exposes our mortality more than when it sneaks up. But it sneaks up on everyone. Even a long life looks back and thinks the years have gone by in a flash. And in the context, again, Jesus is warning this group of people that judgment is coming. And that's the judgment that came in AD 70. But it applies to all of us. When tragedy happens, don't look at it and think, well, goodness, they they must have been really bad that that happened to them. Thank goodness I'm not as bad as that. Jesus is not interested in that sort of discussion. And he urges repentance. Regardless of how a person dies, regardless of when a person dies, regardless of what was the magnitude of their sin, the one thing that matters is, did they repent or did they not? Jesus divides. He, the world is divided into two groups of people. And it's nothing to do with gender, skin color, age, anything else. Those who follow Jesus, those who don't. Those who have repented, those who have not. And Jesus calls people to repentance. And what we can very easily do sometimes is present the gospel in a way where it's buddy Christ. Jesus is so awesome and he'll make your life better and everything will go really well and he'll fix all of those things. And the gospel, we miss the power of the gospel if we don't talk about sin. We miss the fact that according to, to Romans chapter 5, I never remember whether it's verse 5 or verse 8, so we'll go find it. It's verse 8. You know, we'll tell people how loving God is, but we'll forget that according to Paul in Romans, the love of God is demonstrated in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John 3.16, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in sacrifice. So we can't present a Jesus that is just all you know, cozy and comfy and, and huggable and nice and lovely. God's love is most plainly seen in the fact that even while we were still rebelling and sinning against him, he died for us. And repentance is something that, according to Scott McKnight, you cannot force it or coerce it. It has to come from within. You can get people to go to a meeting. You can get them to read a book. You can get them to listen to a sermon. You can, you can have conversations. You can do all sorts of things to, to bring the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Repentance has got to come from the heart. And it's a theme all the way through this this gospel. John the Baptist came in Luke chapter 3 preaching a baptism of repentance and he called the people to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, once you've repented, your life should show that. There should be transformation. There should be an outworking of it. Jesus said, as he summarized his ministry, I've come to call sinners to repentance. 
the most famous story in all of Luke or the most famous chapter is the chapter on lost things. Chapter 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And it's all about repentance. And our ministry in, at the end of Luke, what, he, what Jesus says to his disciples is that repentance is going to be, repeat, it's going to be preached to all nations. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I looked up repentance earlier in the dictionary. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it basically said an intense feeling of remorse over something. Utter nonsense. <laughs> that is not repentance. That's probably just I've been caught <laughs> doing something wrong and I regret it because I've been caught. Repentance is, is, a, is a sense of failure and sin against God. It is admitting wrong and that's where people choke because we're, we're full of pride and we hate having to just say the way I've been living is wrong. And it's asking God for forgiveness and it's a turning. The Old Testament Hebrew word for repentance literally means turning. Turning away from one particular way of living and turning towards God in a new spirit-empowered way of living. Repentance in the New Testament, the word means a change of mind. And without repentance, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. And it's an ongoing thing in our lives as we walk with God. Jesus finishes this little passage with a parable about a tree. A fig tree planted in a vineyard, but there's no fruit. And the owner of the vineyard, who is God, says, For three years, I've been coming to look for fruit in this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Why should it take the nutrients? Why should that patch of ground be wasted on this fig tree that hasn't borne fruit? That's what God says about the fig tree. And he's speaking about the nation of Israel who have not repented. But then the gardener chips in. And the gardener is God as well. <laughs> he's both people in the story. He is both the owner of the vineyard and he is, in Jesus, I believe, the gardener in the vineyard. And he said, the gardener says, no, no, no. He said, leave it alone. Give it one more year. Let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then you can cut it down. And you see both, in, in this passage, you see both the, the severity of God. There's a cutting down coming. For the first hearers of this message, in the immediate context, that's Rome rocking up to Jerusalem in the late AD 60s. The tree's getting cut down. But it applies to every single human being. There will come a time of cutting down. You see the severity and the judgment of God. And you also see the grace of God. As God the Son intervenes and says, be patient. Give me one more year. Let me work on this fig tree one more year. Let me fertilize it. Let me dig around it. Let me water it. Let me give it the conditions that it needs. And then if there's no fruit, you can cut it down. John the Baptist talked about bringing forth fruit as an indication of repentance. And God is patient. But there comes a time when his patience is done when repentance is no longer possible. I know people who know the gospel, who even pray occasionally, 
who are interested in Jesus, who come to church occasionally, who are drawn to him, but they will not repent. (laughs) They like the songs, they like the community, like the atmosphere, but they won't repent. They won't just say, the way I've been living is wrong. I need to turn away and turn towards the gracious God who is offering me this repentance. And Jesus says, such people are on incredibly dangerous ground because you don't know when a dictator is going to lash out or when a tar is going to fall or when a nutcase on the street in the middle of the night is going to stab somebody. And there's a limit to when repentance is possible. And notice how this gardener keeps on maximizing opportunities for repentance. And I wonder again, is there a little message to the church here? Do we need to be the gardener? Do we need to provide opportunities for repentance to take place? And again, this is about the church discerning the times and knowing how to live, how to behave, how to minister into the culture that we're in so that we're doing the digging and fertilizing and doing everything that's possible in the limited time period to create opportunities for trees to bear fruit, for repentance to take place. Difficult passage. Let's, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. These are hard words, but these are Jesus' words. Please, Holy Spirit, come and drive them into our hearts. Father, if there's anyone listening who needs to repent, whether here in the room, whether online, Holy Spirit, meet them. Please. Take away the the false security that there's plenty of time and replace it with a sense of urgency about repentance. And I pray, Father, for us as a church, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you for what you're doing on Tuesday nights and just the stirring and the hunger for your presence. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to discern the times that we're living in, to look around us, It's not rocket science. Not rocket science to see a dark cloud and no rain's coming. It's not rocket science to look at culture and think, how do we need to position ourselves? Oh Lord, give us wisdom as a church. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Speak to us individually, even this morning in this place. As we come together and seek you again on Tuesday, speak to us, Lord. We don't want to just do the same old things. We want to be positioned in this time to bring the message of the gospel into the culture that we're in. Please help us, Lord. Please lead us, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit.